I hate to break it to you, but the odds of a person becoming a Hall of Famer in a given sport are just, they're just real, real low, okay? So I'm not saying you have to count it out, but pretty much all of us have to count it out. The NCAA calculates that 0.08% of high school athletes go on to have a professional career in sport. Of the few to actually play at the major level, say the NFL or the MLB, just 1% of those 0.08% will be inducted to the Hall of Fame. If you play for the NBA or the NHL, it's a little bit higher, 3%. I don't know why that is. Now, no one would have bet on Kurt Warner becoming a Hall of Famer. The LA Times wrote this, he had been cut by the Green Bay Packers, stocked shelves in an Iowa grocery store for minimum wage, starred in the Arena Football League, and played in NFL Europe when St. Louis Rams quarterback Trent Green suffered a knee injury late in the 1999 preseason, the then 28-year-old Warner was tabbed to start. Well, Kurt went on to deliver the Rams their very first Super Bowl win. Nine years later, Kurt led the Cardinals to the Super Bowl as well. After the playoff game that secured their spot in that Super Bowl, Terry Bradshaw went down on the field for Fox and interviewed Kurt, and he said, you're not going to like this but you're the third oldest quarterback to ever play in the Super Bowl. How does that make you feel? Kurt didn't care about his age. And he said, everybody's going to be tired of hearing this, but I never get tired of saying it. There's one reason that I'm standing up on this stage today, and that's because of my Lord up up above. I've got to say thanks to Jesus. You knew I was going to do it, but I've got to do it. Kurt Warner was making plays in that game, but he knows where his help comes from. He's quoted as saying this, I believe that the Lord has a plan for each of us that's better than anything we can imagine, even if that plan isn't obvious to us at every stage. He prepared me for this over a long period of time in lower profile locker rooms and in the grocery store and in Europe, through all the personal tragedies and in spite of the people who doubted me along the way. Kurt's story sort of reminds me of Abraham, at least where we are in our study of his life. Abraham, the unlikely hall of faither, right, who who started it all. He was a husband, a father, a pilgrim, a rancher, a warrior, a businessman, a friend of God. And now decades after the promise first came, after such a long walk through such a strange land, Abraham finally receives the son of promise, the son that God wanted him to have, the son that he had promised so long ago. The theme of this passage is how God is faithful to do his work. It is not our doing. He doesn't owe it to us. You know, if we look at this and, and think about who the characters are in this story, Abraham and Sarah do not deserve what God is doing for them. Uh, Many times over, they don't deserve it, just like we don't deserve the work of God's grace in our lives. It's not our doing. It's His faithfulness. Our part is to simply participate in His supernatural work, even when that work seems impossible. Now, along the way, we're not to try to rush Him. We're not to try to overrule Him. We're not to try to keep editorial control over what He wants to do with our lives. You hear about that sometimes, particularly when beloved books or beloved characters are, are being adapted into movies. There's always a struggle between the, the original author, the creator of the characters, and the director, and who has true creative control. Well, we're not to be the kind of people who try to keep creative or editorial control over our lives from God. It's not going to end up well. 
When we do those things, when we try to rush God, when we try to overrule God, the result is division and damage and destruction. When God works, glory is the result and peace is the result and joy and all of these things that he talks about in his word. But as we see this working out, finally, uh, you know, the Lord accomplishing what he's wanted to accomplish in their lives, there is this huge elephant in the room looming over the wonderful blessing of this new baby is the irreconcilable consequences of Abraham's previous decision to try to do God's work for him. That all comes to a head here in chapter 21. We start in verse 1. It says, The Lord came to Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did for Sarah what he had promised. God is faithful. There's a lot of verses that come really easily to us, either because they're just so part of, you know, our culture, or because you memorize them as a child, or they're put to music. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, right? For God so loved the world, there's certain verses that, that are just right at the surface of our hearts. And I would suggest that maybe we each try to make this verse one of those verses. The Lord came, put your name there. The Lord came to you as he had said, and the Lord did for you what he had promised. Because God is faithful. Even when we are unfaithful, God remains faithful. He is coming, and he will not fail in any of his promises to you. We do not have to coax God to pay attention to us. We do not have to convince the Holy Spirit to want to get involved in our lives or in our church or in our families. There's a weird sort of twisted mentality that sometimes Christians slip into where we think we have to really cajole God, we have to convince God, we have to make ourselves look as though we're interesting to God, and then finally He'll break out all over us. That's not at all how God is, is, is depicted in the Scripture. He wants to be involved. He's involving Himself. When we feel distanced from God, it's not because He's withdrawn from us, it's because we have withdrawn from Him. One translation puts it this way, the Lord singled out Sarah. That's a pretty neat way of thinking about it. You and I have been singled out for particular good works that the Lord wants us to partner in with Him. Uh, it says so plainly in the New Testament. Now, we think of characters like Abraham and Sarah and David and Daniel and Ruth and Esther, and we think, well, those were special people who did a special work. They did do a special work, and they were special people. And they are people like you who serve the same God as you. And God says, yeah, you are special to me, and I also have a special work that I want to do through your life. It might not have the kind of global ramifications that, say, uh, uh, Daniel ruling over Babylon had, right? But God still wants to do a particular, special, supernatural work through your life. You are not a generic Lego in His building. You are a, 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 a unique special, beloved creation. He knows you by name. He's known you some from before the foundations of the earth. He keeps your tears in a bottle. He numbers the hairs of your head. You're not generic to him. He singles you out. And the way we discover what he has singled us out for is by hearing from God and paying close attention to his leading and his instruction. God wants to lead you in life. He wants to lead you in, in the choices that you make and the, the activities that you're a part of and the people you're connected to. And so we want to listen for his leading. Verse 2 says, Sarah became pregnant and bore a son to Abraham in his old age at the appointed time God had told him. This is a great example of how God does supernatural work through our everyday lives. 
Listen, it was absolutely impossible for Abraham and Sarah to have a child, physically speaking, on the earthly human level. It was impossible. It couldn't be done. Uh, they've made no bones about the fact that their bodies were no longer capable of doing this. And yet, the Lord accomplished it because He doesn't have to obey the laws of our decrepit bodies and those things like that. He's a supernatural God. But notice what He did here. He didn't just shoot a sky beam down, right? What do we always see in all of like the Marvel movies? There's always a sky beam. There's always some portal. There's always something that is completely outside of the world as we know it right? God here is using His supernatural work, but it's being done through the ordinary circumstances of a family and a life lived. He's going to build this incredible testimony. He's going to start sending the deliverer through a family, through parents and a kid, and and how they're going to raise their kid and teach them the ways of the Lord. Why did God wait so long? Since, after all, we're talking about the drama of redemption here, doesn't God want to roll back sin and death and everything that we've done wrong? Yes, He does. But it turns out it takes quite a bit of what we call time. God is outside of time and space, and so He is not worried about days the way that we are. And we read about that, a thousand years is as a day, a day is a thousand years, all of that sort of thing. But why did He wait so long? Why wait and give Abraham so much opportunity to derail this whole plan through fear and doubt and missteps. Remember, in the very last passage, Abraham almost completely ruined this entire thing as he delivered his wife into the harem of a Philistine king. Well, first of all, as I said, God is not bound to time the way we are. But also, the Bible shows us that God loves to reveal Himself, and He loves to show that He's the one working. He loves to prove who He is and how good He is and how He is able when no one else is able. He loves to show this world that He is God and there is no other. And so He often in these stories will bring people to the circumstance where there is no other explanation other than that God has done what God loves to do and that there's no mistaking that the God of heaven accomplished this. And these are the kinds of things that He wants to do through our lives. He wants to broadcast His goodness and His ability and His reality through our lives and the testimonies He's building in us. Verse 3 says, Abraham named his son who was born to him, the one Sarah bore to him, Isaac. When his son Isaac was eight days old, Abraham circumcised him as God had commanded him. Abraham was not perfect. In fact, as I said in the very last passage, we saw how he almost completely ruined this, this whole thing. Have you watched any of like the SpaceX uh, rocket launches? Sometimes it goes really, really badly. You wait for the launch and then like, and, or it just like falls over or something like that, uh, you know. But eventually they get one up there and now we have those weird satellites floating around that we don't know what they're doing, right? But so he almost really fouled things up because he was not a perfect man. But From here on, a page turns in the story of Abraham. We see in him from here on out a willingness and an obedience and a faith that outshines anything we've seen in his life before. He was quick to obey what God had asked him to do, both in the naming of Isaac and circumcising his new baby boy. And of course, we see that God's promise of a son was truly and literally fulfilled. This is how God fulfills prophecy. God makes a lot of what we call prophecy. To him, it's just future history from our perspective. He he says it and it is done, right? 
But God gives us a lot of what we call prophecy. He says, this is what's going to happen. And then later in human history, that happens. And most prophecies in the Bible have been fulfilled. About 500 have not yet been fulfilled. All of the previous prophecies from if we turn and look back through human history, all of them that God has given us were fulfilled literally and actually, like this one. He said, you're going to have a baby boy. It wasn't an allegory. It wasn't spiritualized. It wasn't metaphysical. Nine months later, there was a baby boy that you could hold in your hands. He said, okay, you know, a Messiah is going to come. God is going to put on human flesh. And then that really happened. And now God says, hey, there's about 500 other things that are going to happen in the future concerning Jesus' second coming and concerning the great tribulation and concerning the millennial kingdom and all these other things. There's no reason for us to turn from our pivot point on history and say, well, everything beyond us is fake or is allegorized or is spiritualized and we should not expect to literally happen, but everything behind us is true and literal. What do we always see in the Bible? We see true, literal fulfillment not mystical, not just spiritual. Just as he did here, there was a real live bouncing baby boy. And so we always like to point that out here at Calvary. Verse five says, Abraham was 100 years old when his son Isaac was born to him. Sarah was 90 at the time, by the way. Dr. Henry Morris points out that what God did for them was not just a one-time burst of help. We, we see, sometimes see this like depicted in movies, right, where the heroes uh, have to muster enough power to, you know, we can open the gateway or we can open the breach for one brief instant and everybody has to get through. And then after that, it closes and there's nothing and we're all kind of depleted and there's no more energy and, you know, this is our last hope. But that's not what we're seeing here. Abraham and Sarah, it seems, were dramatically rejuvenated by God's work because Abraham didn't just father one son, he would go on to father six more sons after this. Uh, Sarah wasn't just able to carry and deliver a baby by the skin of her teeth. No, she was able to nurse him as well and had a lot of vigor. She started talking about other children and those sorts of things in, in the coming verses. And so we see this great work of God in their lives. After 100 years, Abraham was embarking on the most important work of his life, the herding, the ranching, the trading, the Delta Force rescue op that he was involved with a number of chapters ago, the building of a household. All of that was significant. All of that was neat. All of that was important. All of that was part of the life God had given him to lead. But this was the most important thing. This being the father to Isaac, this was the great calling God had put on his life. It was the primary thing God had given him to do, the primary calling. What's your calling? What has God called you to do? If the answer is, I have no idea, then go ask the Lord. Lord, what do you, what do you have for me? And you know what? Maybe he's not going to answer you right away. It might be years or decades before the Lord gives you that sort of primary thing that looking back on your life, you'll be able to say, oh, I did a lot of stuff before, but this was the, the primary work that God gave me to do. But all the more reason why we just need to be people who are led by God, the Holy Spirit, so that we can be sure that we're not spending time down in Egypt when we're supposed to be getting ready for Isaac, if we're using Abraham as an example. Verse six says, Sarah said, God has made me laugh and everyone who hears will laugh with me. Our Lord is such a redeemer. He's so good. He's so tender and so kind to us. Sarah's earlier laugh, you'll recall, had been one of scorn and disbelief. We remember that awkward lunch that the Lord had had with them. And he said, hey, Sarah's going to have a baby. And she laughed. 
not because she was excited, but because she was in her heart mocking what God had said. And then Jesus said, hey, or the Lord said, hey, did, did Sarah, how, why did Sarah laugh? Oh, I didn't laugh. She's lying to the angel of the Lord. Uh, really bad scene. But what does the Lord do? He redeems all of that. Because as we sang tonight, he brings beauty from ashes. The ashes of her laughter, he says, I'm going to bring something beautiful and holy out of that. You know, our failures, our shortcomings are not too much for God. He loves us so much that He looks down on the squalor of your heart and my heart, and He says, yeah, I can work with that. We can turn something beautiful out of that mess. Let's go for it. If you watch any of those shows where they do like restoration, it's, it's crazy. I sometimes wonder if they're, you know how on cooking shows they like put the uncooked thing in the oven and immediately pull out the cooked thing, right? I sometimes wonder on some of these restoration shows, they're like this old Schwinn bicycle. It's, you know, one tire and it's just a, a bunch of like rubble. And then they bring it out, it's like brand new, it's all gleaming. And you're like, did you guys just fake this? But that's what the Lord does with a life. That's what he does with your heart. He says, yeah, it's a mess. It's a total mess. But I can shape this into something wonderful. I can bring beauty from the ashes of this life. And we see here that that personal work that God does in us is meant to be on public display. Everyone who hears, Sarah said. This was a story that needed to be told. Yes, it was immensely personal and in some ways very private. It contained a lot of details that would have been embarrassing for them to share. But, you know, God wants to take his personal work in your life and use it to build a testimony of his grace and power that is then broadcast to the world. Because whatever it is that God's doing in us, we do not have to be ashamed of it. We rejoice in it and are excited about it. Now, linguistically, we're told that it's possible that what Sarah actually said was, everyone who hears will laugh at me. It might be that they laugh with me to rejoice and, hey, we're just excited. And we like to think of it that way. Everybody's just super excited to hear what the Lord had done for Sarah. But in your experience, are, is everyone always excited and in agreement with you about things that God is doing in your life? Everyone in your family, all of your friends, all of your coworkers and peers? It's not always the case. A lot of times you have people who are not laughing with you. They are people who are laughing at you because they do not believe. And they think this whole Jesus business is a bunch of hokum. And they think that you're wasting your life going to church. And they think that you're throwing it all away on being a Jesus freak. But what do we see here? Even if they were laughing at her in that way, Sarah did not care. She's like, I'm full of the joy of the Lord. You can laugh if you want. I've got my baby. And I have the Lord with me. And look what the Lord has done. He took my mocking, he took my disbelief, and through grace and mercy, he, he has transformed me from the inside out, and now I'm a person who is an object of his affection. I'm being used by him to do life-changing things, world-changing things. It's a great moment. Verse 7, Sarah also said, who would have told Abraham that Sarah would nurse children, yet I have borne a son for him in his old age? You know, there's an outward focus in her song of praise. She's thinking about the Lord. She's thinking about her husband. She's thinking about her children and, and coming grandchildren. 
And so we kind of see that God, as he's doing this work in her life, he's also removing self-centeredness from her heart. And that is always part of what the Lord wants to do in us as his people. He wants to, to help us crucify self, to remove self-centeredness and, and an orientation that is always thinking of ourselves. It, it, the more I am alive to self, the less I am alive to the Spirit, right? What did John the Baptist say? I must decrease so that he can increase. And he was speaking about his ministry versus Jesus' ministry, but that needs to be true in our hearts as well where we just say, Lord, I want to be less about myself and more about you and more about the people that you have connected me with and scattered me into the world with. Verse 8, the child grew and was weaned, and Abraham held a great feast on the day Isaac was weaned. This would have been an interesting party because it had a bunch of Philistines as guests. Now, Philistines are bad guys in the Bible, right? We always think of Philistines in, in the sense of Goliath. But, but at this point, they weren't antagonistic that way towards the Hebrew people. And Abraham was still living in the land of Abimelech. And so a bunch of Philistines are guests. And, and it drives home the idea that God's desire is to use your life to preach to the unbelievers around you. We are meant to be salt and light in a rotten and dark world, right? God says, yeah, I want you to be going out there and mixed in among the Philistines, not being like them, but being completely different than them, being set apart. And I want you to show them compassionately and with grace how great my power is and how great my love is and how faithful I am and how they can be included on all this stuff too. And so we see a great picture there in this party. Verse 9, but Sarah saw the son mocking, the one Hagar, the Egyptian, had borne to Abraham. So she said to Abraham, drive out this slave with her son, for the son of this slave will not be a co-heir with my son Isaac. If we were people who read Hebrew, uh, we know this because there are people who read Hebrew, but if we were people who read Hebrew, we'd see that Moses keeps using forms of this same word for laughing a lot. Uh, Sarah is laughing. God has made me laugh. Those who hear will laugh. Isaac's name means laughter. And here the word for mocking is also connected to that word. Scholars say that Ishmael was Isaacing Isaac. And so there's a lot of this stuff going on with laughter. So what's really happening here? Because if we're honest, it seems like Sarah is super overreacting, right? He's, Ishmael's 16 or 17 at the time. Uh, who, who among us weren't wisecracking jerks at the age of 16 and 17? Uh, I mean, now, maybe you have heard it said that the Hebrew indicates that Ishmael molested Isaac. Now, that seems to go farther than the language and context suggest. However, there is a small case to be made for that. However, it doesn't seem to be what Moses is getting at in this section. But if Ishmael was just sort of joking around and, and poking fun, why does Sarah react so harshly and God then seemingly sign off on her reaction? Linguists tell us that mocking here can mean insulting or making sport of. So we have this little toddler, right? It's when he's weaned. He's probably two or three years old, according to the traditions of that time. And his older brother, who's 16 or 17, cruelly making sport of him. Maybe even getting in his face and seeing, you think you're going to be in charge? We'll see about that. You don't know. What we know is that Sarah is very concerned, very concerned about the future for her son. Now, Paul helps shine a little bit of light on this for us 
and, and gives us a little insight into what is going on here because he talks about this scene in the book of Galatians. In Galatians, he uses Ishmael and Isaac as an analogy for us about our life with Christ, and we'll touch on that at the end. But in that passage, he says that Isaac, or Ishmael persecuted Isaac. What does that mean? Well, the Greek term, we're told, means to drive away or to aggressively chase like a hunter pursuing a catch. It all comes full circle when we find out that later Ishmael is going to become a hunter, an archer. And so we see all this sort of working together. So now it's, it's as if Ishmael is, is not just poking fun. I mean, he is, he is aggressively going after his little, little brother Isaac and in a sense driving him away as if he was the prey. He's the little rabbit, and Ishmael is the fox. And so now Sarah's reaction seems a lot more reasonable. If Ishmael was going to try to drive out Isaac, then he must be driven out. This is not a case of boys will be boys. No, it's more like when Adam was driven out of Eden and Cain was driven out of human society. Why? Because of their willful sin. It was a consequence of a choice that they had made. Verse 11, this was very distressing to Abraham because of his son. He's talking about Ishmael in this verse. Abraham loved Ishmael. Hey, Sarah had clearly no affection for Ishmael. Her and Hagar had a lot of problems, but Ishmael is Abraham's son, and he loves his boy. He had even floated Ishmael as heir to God a few chapters ago. Remember, he said, if only Ishmael were acceptable to you, and the Lord had to say, no, man, it's not going to be Ishmael. I have a plan for Ishmael's life, but no, we're not going with Ishmael. And we'll see that God did care about Hagar and Ishmael as people. But now things had come to a head as they had earlier with Lot and his family. Abraham had people in tow that were not compatible with what God was going to do, and it broke Abraham's heart. Verse 12, but God said to Abraham, do not be distressed about the boy and about your slave. Whatever Sarah says to you, listen to her because your offspring will be traced through Isaac. And I will also make a nation of the slave son because he is your offspring. God was going to be gracious to all of the parties involved, but first there needed to be this painful work of excising the son of the flesh the family of faith could not continue the way things were. Verse 14, early in the morning, Abraham got up, took bread and a water skin, put them on Hagar's shoulders and sent her and the boy away. She left and wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba. That's it? That's it? I know we have a serious situation here, but no donkey, no wagon, no real supplies. Abraham is one of the richest people in the world at this point. Some bread and a single skin of water? It looks pretty, pretty uncompassionate, uh, if you ask me. Now, there are a variety of suggestions why they were sent out with so little. One commentator thinks Abraham gave them such little supply on purpose so that they would be forced to stay nearby and he could sort of continue to look after them sort of under the table. That's speculation. Uh, another scholar points out that archaeologists have found a legal code from roughly this time period in that place. It's called the Lippet Ishtar Law Code, which forbade a slave and her offspring from receiving any part of the inheritance. And so it's possible this was a legal thing. We don't know. 
Maybe it was just that God was providentially leading Sarah to say, because he, he said, do whatever Sarah says. And so probably Sarah said a bag of water and a piece of bread. And that seems pretty harsh, but maybe the Lord was providentially working because he, he did still want to do a work in Hagar's life. He did still want to do a work in Ishmael's life. He wanted to make himself real to them as he had before and as he had for Abraham. He needs to teach them how to walk a life of faith. And so we have no idea why it's so meager. Whatever it was, here's what we can see. Many long decades later, Ishmael still had enough affection for his father to come and bury him. That was 75 years after this day. He would come and bury his father. And, and so whatever's happening here, clearly Ishmael, he's, he's old enough to know what's happening. He's old enough to feel the sting. And yet about 75 years later, he's going to look back and say, I still love my dad enough that I'm going to go and bury him. I'm going to hang out with Isaac. We haven't seen each other or spoken to each other for 75 years, but we're going to, we're going to have a funeral for dad together. So I think that says something about the situation and about Ishmael's love for his dad and how he felt about him even after this. For his part, Abraham again was quick to obey. We see such a heart of obedience here, even when it hurts to do it, even when he does not want to, even when it meant really sacrificing something painfully, he was willing to do it and he rose early. He's going to do so again in the very next chapter. He did just as he was commanded, and in so doing, he trusts the Lord. Verse 15, when the water and the skin was gone, she left the boy under one of the bushes and went and sat at a distance, about a bowshot away, for she said, I can't bear to watch the boy die. While she sat at a distance, she wept loudly. This is a terrible scene. Perhaps Hagar had thought, well, I went out on my own once before when I was pregnant and found a spring of water. We'll be okay, but not this time. No, it's much, much worse. They are about to die from thirst and exposure, but then God shows himself. Verse 17, God heard the boy crying, and the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, what's wrong, Hagar? Don't be afraid, for God has heard the boy crying from the place where he is. What's wrong? Sort of a rude question, if you ask me, uh, but... It, 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 when we consider the whole of Hagar's story, it's really not a rude question. She had already met with God face to face. Remember, she gave God a name, El Roy, you are the God who sees. And he said, name your son Ishmael, I am the God who hears. She had met with this God and he had told her that she would have many offspring and that Ishmael would have offspring and he would have a future ahead of him. They couldn't die in the wilderness of Beersheba because the God of heaven and earth had said so. And yet, the, Moses is careful to point out that she did not call out to God. It wasn't her that it was making an entreaty to the Lord, but it was Ishmael. He's like, hey, I heard Ishmael crying. What's going on? And so we see that Hagar didn't call out to the God who sees. Hagar didn't pray to the God who hears. She had given up. And so the Lord comes to her and he says, hey, what's wrong? And what was wrong was that she was not walking by faith in the situation. Now, if God was with them all along and had all these plans for them, why allow all of this severe suffering? Why bring them to death's door in the desert? Their suffering was not caused by God. God saved them from it. The world is the way it is because of human sin. Hagar and Ishmael were out in that wilderness because of sin. God was not responsible for their suffering. The opposite is true. He took it on himself to rescue them, to involve himself so that they would live and have a future instead of dying in the desert. Verse 18, get up, 
help the boy up, grasp his hand, for I will make him a great nation. And then God opened her eyes and she saw a well. So she went and filled the water skin and gave the boy a drink. You know, living by faith is a hands-on kind of life. God has individual plans for our lives and our families, and they always include us getting up and grasping the hands of the weak and afflicted people around us. We are to go and deliver living water to those who are about to die of spiritual thirst. What was this well doing in the wilderness? Who dug it? There's nobody around. They're about to die because they're out in the middle of the desert. We don't know. Somebody dug this well. Maybe you feel like your spiritual efforts are like digging a well in Beersheba, something that seems totally pointless and makes no difference. But God doesn't waste anything he leads us to do. It may seem stupid. It may seem worthless to you right now. If God has led you to do it, just do it and trust that he will bring the increase. Verse 20, God was with the boy and he grew. He settled in the wilderness and became an archer. He settled in the wilderness of Paran and his mother got a wife for him from the land of Egypt. You know, we think of Ishmael as a villain, typically, but it's interesting to read here that God was with him. Will we see Ishmael in heaven? I don't know. But we have to marvel at the gracious, loving faithfulness our God shows to the most undeserving people, you and I included. This is interesting. Ishmael completely breaks from what his father Abraham had done. He doesn't become a shepherd. He becomes a hunter. He makes his home in the wilderness rather than the fruitful land of promise. And as we close, this brings us to how Paul in the New Testament wants us to think about this story in application to our walk with the Lord. He talks in that passage, Galatians 4, about how Ishmael is like a Christian trying to live by the law, and we would call that legalism, trying to approach God through legalism or religiosity. Isaac represents living by the Spirit. And Paul lays all this out and he says, listen, you need to drive out the son of the flesh. You need to drive out legalism from your heart and from your walk with the Lord and your relationship with Christ. In Genesis 13, we saw that Abraham and Lot could not coexist together. And it was a picture to us of how the life of faith cannot coexist with lust and materialism. But now we swing sort of to the other side of the religious spectrum, and we find that a life of faith cannot coexist with legalism, a legalistic mentality that I follow certain rules, that I accomplish the work of Christianity through the, my own power, that I do certain things, and therefore God owes me something, or therefore I am approved to God because of what I have done. That's legalism, and we have to drive that out because a legalistic mentality will do on a spiritual level what Ishmael does. It's not a shepherd. It's a hunter. It's hunting the work of the Spirit. It persecutes. It seeks to supplant the true work of God's grace. It's always looking to snipe some prey and keep you settled in the wilderness rather than in the bountiful blessings of God's grace. And so we have to drive it out, Paul says. We got to get rid of legalism from our hearts. Here's what Paul says, brothers and sisters, we are not children of a slave, but of the free woman. For freedom, Christ set us free. Stand firm then and don't submit again to a yoke of slavery. Instead of submitting to a yoke of slavery, let's continue in faith and be people who grow the way Abraham did, enjoying the awesome transforming work of God along the way.